What draws people to be friends is that they see the same truth. They share it. So wrote the author C.S. Lewis. And that power of two people discovering a shared reality and viewing the world as if through a single lens is a universal one. Applying to strangers, hitting it off in a pub. You remember pubs, right? Just as it does to kings and courtiers, to presidents and prime ministers. The basis of friendship is providing much food for thought inside Downing Street right now, as Boris Johnson and his team consider how to approach the new American president, and how to convince a sceptical Joe Biden that these two chalk and cheese leaders in fact see the world in much the same way. Plenty has been written about the challenge Johnson faces. His ill-judged attack on Barack Obama's heritage during the EU referendum has not been forgotten by those close to the former president. Biden's broader distaste for the Brexit project is clear, as is his contempt for leaders who just love to press populist buttons to win power. Wisely, Johnson's early strategy has been to emphasise instead, as C.S. Lewis would have it, the truths the two men share, views on climate change, on multilateralism and on defence. But as British diplomats struggle to build bridges with a new-look White House, they can console themselves with one simple thought. At least they're not in Theresa May's position of four years ago. I thought to myself, we're probably preparing for Hillary Clinton at that point. This is Katie Perrier, Director of Communications for Theresa May through much of 2016 and 17. And I had this kind of grand thought in my head that, you know, who runs the world, girls, and it would be Angela Merkel in Germany, it'd be Theresa May in Great Britain, and it would be Hillary Clinton in the US. And what a powerful picture that may present the world. And so I kind of had that in mind. Well, didn't we all? The reality, of course, would be somewhat different. May and her team were flying back from a trade visit to India on the night of the 2016 election. For travelling journalists and work-weary political aides, these flights home are usually moments to, shall we say, let off steam. But news began to filter through of Donald Trump's unfolding successes and the party atmosphere on board quickly soured. Lots of people were going to come off the plane and head off to the kind of iconic US embassy party that happens every election. I decided that as the results were coming in, I had no longer any interest in the party. And I went to my hotel room and prepared for the following morning. And I was back in the office by 6am. Um, and Theresa May walked in as I was blow drying my hair to say to me, we need a statement on Trump. We need to start preparing. Thus began the most challenging of transatlantic relationships. Trump left the Prime Minister waiting days even for a phone call and would later bully and berate her in private and in public over Brexit, terrorism and much else. He embarrassed her in newspaper interviews. He questioned America's commitment to NATO. He slagged off London in the middle of a terror attack. And worst of all, he kept on hanging out with Nigel Farage. He was, in short, a bloody nightmare to deal with. Theresa May, that eternal gritter of teeth, felt obliged to suck it up as best she could. There is, after all, no more important diplomatic relationship for the UK than that between our Prime Minister and the American President. For the past 80 years, British leaders have tried to navigate this often rocky terrain. Some of them aced it. None more so than Winston Churchill, who spent weeks drinking brandy and making military plans with Franklin D. Roosevelt in the aftermath of the Pearl Harbour attacks. Tony Blair was arguably too successful, forming a brotherly bond with George W. Bush, which would ultimately be his undoing. But others have struggled to make hay. Who can forget the image of Gordon Brown limping back from his first White House summit with Barack Obama, having been denied even a press conference, 
and with only a lousy gift set of DVDs to remember it all by. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we look at how successive Prime Ministers have tried to charm American presidents in those crucial early months of their relationships, and what Boris Johnson might learn from how they got on. There are few more thrilling flights to take as a political journalist than the eight-hour hop on the Prime Minister's jet from London to Washington. The mood on board among the UK press pack is always one of excitement. Even the most veteran lobby reporter never tires of seeing an American president up close in the White House. But the flight to DC in January 2017 was different. Donald Trump had only been in office for a week, and we in the press pack knew we'd be seeing something unlike anything we'd witnessed before. As we chatted at the back of the plane over RAF ready meals, the mood among Theresa May's team up front was tense. Securing the first trip to the new White House of any foreign leader was a big win. But with such an erratic figure as Trump waiting to greet them, nobody really knew how it was going to pan out. Katie Perrier was among the senior Downing Street staffers on board. We were leaving the European Union and so we needed to make sure that we had allies and we could get into bed elsewhere. So Theresa May put up with a hell of a lot really because she wanted that free trade agreement from President Trump. And of course, he's a businessman. So we had to start thinking about what kind of deal would he consider to be a success. When Donald Trump does anything, it's all about him winning. It's all about making sure that he has the upper hand. And so if we wanted his agreement on something like NATO, we'd have to plan and strategize how we could get him to do that while still feeling like he had a win. As seasoned Westminster observers may recall, relations within May's top team were somewhat fractious at the time. An internal row had already broken out over secret plans to ditch the all-important White House press conference and instead show images of the two leaders having a cosy fireside chat. Perrier was not impressed. The first idea that people had, and they were pretty wedded to, was a coffee around a fireplace with 40 of Britain's finest journalists sitting in Trump Tower opposite, watching via live video link. And I said, over my dead body. And so I managed to persuade a lot of people that this is an important moment for Great Britain. We must have a press conference and we must show that Theresa May is absolutely capable of holding her own in these environments, as she is. And I think we showed her off to her best skill set, really. Well, I was one of those 40 journalists on that trip, actually. And I, so I'm very grateful that you uh, you secured us that press conference because it's certainly a very memorable occasion. And actually, my memory of it is that it went pretty well for you guys. You more or less got the concession from him you wanted on NATO. Commitment to this alliance, Mr. President. I think you said you confirmed that you're 100% behind NATO. He didn't say anything ridiculous. He didn't embarrass the Prime Minister. I guess you were pretty happy with how it went, were you? I was really pleased with how it went because I'd kind of been quite demanding with the comms director, Sean Spicer, at their end saying, look, it's kind of four or five questions tops. And then we had this moment whereby we got to choose, as you know, Jack, you get to choose who asks questions of the Prime Minister and the President. And I chose Laura Koonsberg and she didn't hold back, did she? Mr. President, you've said before that torture works. You've praised Russia. You've said you want to ban some Muslims from coming to America. For many people in Britain, those sound like alarming beliefs. What do you say to our viewers at home who are worried about some of your views and worried about you becoming the leader of the free world? This was your choice of a question. (laughs) Trump, on this occasion, was all smiles. Theresa May got the commitment she wanted on NATO, 
And Katy Perry had got the front page picture she'd been planning for weeks. The two leaders side by side at a grand press conference doing business in a professional way. At least, she almost did. The day went really well until he held her hand. And I knew what I wanted my front page to be. I wanted it to be the picture of the press conference with the flags behind them and Theresa May kind of rolling him on NATO and she did a brilliant job of that. The front page I got was him holding her hand and I stood behind the snappers as they were taking the picture and I said, that's the shot, isn't it? And they went, yeah. And I was like, oh God, you win some, you lose some. You can't win them all. That famous hand-holding picture taken as the two leaders walked down a ramp outside the White House was only the start of the great unravelling. Within hours of May's departure from Washington, Trump announced details of his so-called Muslim travel ban, leaving the PM looking foolish on the next leg of her trip. And a decision to offer Trump the pomp and ceremony of a state visit to Britain backfired, raising the prospect of mass protests back home. That was just like a noose around her neck the whole time, really, because he said things like, you know, I'm not going to come unless they're nice to me. Uh, well, you know, that's not how it works in this country. Did you always feel like you were walking a tightrope with him in the sense that you needed to have a reasonably strong relationship with him, but if you were seen to be cozying up to him, you knew you'd face a barrage of criticism from political opponents and the press and everyone else? Not only was it a tightrope, it was a really thin tightrope. And, you know, occasionally we would fall off it. The defence alliance May had been desperately trying to preserve on that 2017 trip to Washington has its roots in a very different type of summit between British and American leaders almost 75 years before. Let's rewind to the birth of the modern special relationship when another British Prime Minister made the trip across the Atlantic to meet his US counterpart, but this time with his nation under siege. This was the summer of 1941, when the future of European democracy hung in the balance. With America stubbornly resisting direct involvement in the war, Winston Churchill knew the stakes could not have been higher for his first meeting with President Franklin D. Roosevelt. The British Prime Minister had long been convinced that any path to Allied victory would ultimately require the might of the US military. A secret summit was arranged in Newfoundland at a naval base off the coast of what is now northeast Canada. This was a key moment for both men. This was the moment at which they were going to see whether or not the personal chemistry was going to work. This is the historian Andrew Roberts. He's written one of the best single-volume biographies of Winston Churchill. Churchill recognised that there was no way that America was going to declare war on the Nazis simply because of a good relationship that he was able to build with FDR at that meeting. But he also recognised how important good personal relations were. The journey to Newfoundland meant six long days on hazardous oceans with total radio blackout. Churchill's focus on the journey was simple. How to form a bond with the president. He would walk backwards and forwards along the deck of the battleship with the permanent undersecretary at the Foreign Office, Sir Alec Cadogan. And Cadogan would play FDR and Churchill, of course, would play himself and they would go through all the permutations and combinations of the way that the conversation could go. Churchill being Churchill, these day-long strategy meetings were counterbalanced by late-night brandy and backgammon and endless viewings of his favourite Vivian Lee movie, that Hamilton woman. The trip over was, <laughs> it was play as well as work. And Churchill was always very good at, <laughs> at play. But underlying it, of course, he always recognised that this was going to be a, a key meeting of his life. And he prepared for it extremely um, carefully. Awkwardly for Churchill, 
it transpired the two men had in fact met once before, at a dinner in London more than 20 years earlier, when FDR was Assistant Secretary of the Navy. Roosevelt later recalled how Churchill had treated him, quote, like a stinker. Churchill claimed the whole episode had slipped his memory. Ugh. Happily, the two leaders quickly got over that and discovered they actually rather liked one another. Interestingly, they came from very much the same kind of background. They were both aristocrats in their own countries. They had the same kind of political views. The Tory democracy of Winston Churchill overlapped a good deal with the New Deal of FDR, and they also got on personally. Churchill returned home delighted, but still desperate for the US to join Britain as a true military ally in the war. Four months later, he would get his wish, but in truly disastrous circumstances. Hello, NBC. This is Honolulu, Hawaii. We have witnessed this morning a distant view of Pearl Harbor and a severe bombing of Pearl Harbor by Churchill's first reaction when he heard about Pearl Harbor was one of relief. He now knew that America would get into the war. Um, He recognised now that we were going to win. He said that he uh, slept the sleep of the saved. The jubilant Churchill's first thought was that he must get over to Washington immediately. Another treacherous voyage beckoned across an Atlantic beset by winter storms and teeming with German subs. But this time, Churchill was in high spirits, pacing the deck with a beaming smile and joking about ramming a U-boat or two. The Prime Minister, not a man to do things by halves, had already decided a short meeting would not suffice this time. On his arrival into Washington, Churchill set up camp inside the White House and stayed for three full weeks. Can you imagine... I'm not sure how President Biden would react to Boris Johnson squatting in the West Wing for the best part of a month. Churchill naturally made himself at home, trying out different beds to see which suited him best, and transforming the Grand Monroe Room into a den of maps where he could strategize with the president. The two leaders dined together every evening, sometimes working and drinking late into the night. On one occasion, FDR even entered Churchill's quarters to find him standing naked in the bathtub. Churchill, typically, was unfazed. The Prime Minister of Great Britain has nothing to hide from the President of the United States, he said. The time that Churchill spent in the White House in the December of 1941, going through on to January 1942, was utterly central to his personal relationship with FDR. He didn't much like FDR's cocktails. It was the one thing he didn't like. But otherwise, uh, he had the most fantastic time and they shared all the maps, they shared the intelligence, they had endless meetings over grand strategy, they spent Christmas together. It really was a key moment for their bonding. And Mrs Roosevelt just had to put up with this rather strange drunken man in the house for a few weeks in the the sort of the the greater good I guess. Eleanor Roosevelt was rather pleased when finally Winston Churchill went home. She was able to get her husband back. She felt that her husband was probably drinking a bit too much with with Churchill in the White House and she was quite relieved ultimately when uh, the whole visit came to an end. That trip really cements their relationship I guess. After that would you describe the two leaders as being actually pretty close on a personal level? I would say that after the White House meeting of December 1941, January 1942, the two men are genuine friends. They have become friends. 
In the post-war years, presidents and prime ministers would continue to be drawn together by another common enemy, Soviet Russia. Harold Macmillan and John F. Kennedy got on like a house on fire despite the 23-year age gap, bonding over conciliatory glasses of whiskey after Kennedy had endured a disastrous meeting with the Russian leader Nikolai Khrushchev. By contrast, another whiskey-loving president, Richard Nixon, and his opposite number, Ted Heath, famously loathed one another. After the break, I'll be taking a closer look at the most famous transatlantic bond of the whole Cold War era, the friendship between Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Sadly, there's no whiskey involved in that one. But do stay with us. If you're enjoying Jack's podcast so far, you might want to try another political podcast. EU Confidential. It's the number one European politics podcast with analysis every week from political reporters in Brussels, Berlin, Paris and around the continent. Just search for EU Confidential wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe today. Few Prime Ministers have celebrated an American election result as Margaret Thatcher did in 1980. The Tory PM had struggled to find much common ground with President Jimmy Carter and was thrilled when he was defeated by Ronald Reagan. Crucially, she'd already befriended the Republican challenger long before his election and was well-placed to capitalise on his newfound power. She'd been following Reagan since the 1960s, since his early visits to London. This is the historian Richard Aldous, whose book Reagan and Thatcher charts the ups and downs of the leader's famous relationship. She met him a couple of times during the 1970s when she was leader of the opposition. And again, that's a good sign of her political instincts. She made a great fuss of him so that when he was elected president in 1980, she was ready to go. That relationship had already been established. Those meetings were more than political expediency on Thatcher's part. That first get-together in 1975 in her cramped rooms in Parliament was only meant to be a short meet-and-greet, but overran by some 90 minutes. An aide to Reagan who was present described them as peas in a pod, chatting merrily as if they'd been friends for years. It was a relationship really built on a kind of a shared philosophy, a particular way of thinking about right-wing politics that wasn't the traditional small-c conservative way. And I think the other factor that we sometimes forget is that as somebody who was born in 1925, the Second World War was very much an influence on her. Reagan was born a generation earlier, but they had that same sense of courtesy, of a way of seeing the world, the shaping experience of the Atlantic relationship during the war. Key to ensuring the friendship was cemented now that Reagan was in office was an eccentric diplomat who Thatcher had plucked out of retirement in 1979 to make ambassador to Washington. Sir Nicholas Henderson, famously charming and an expert networker, had within days of the election convinced the legendary Washington Post owner Catherine Graham to host a small dinner for the president-elect and his team and to include him on the VIP guest list. Boris Johnson will hope his own ambassador in Washington, Karen Pearce, has similarly sharp elbows. Nico Henderson is the perfect example of how important the ambassador can be in the relationship between Britain and the United States. So if you have a good ambassador like Nico Henderson, who know how Washington work, are able to not just work through their diplomatic channels, but also through the social channels. So Henderson was able to use his kind of flamboyant social skills, his networking skills, to make sure that that 
Thatcher's congratulatory telegram got to the top of the pile, that she was one of the first leaders to visit the United States and meet Reagan and get the full treatment at the White House. For all her Iron Lady image, Thatcher was nervous before the first trip to visit President Reagan in February 1981. She prepared extensively, personally choosing some exquisite halcyon boxes as a gift for the president and convening a special seminar at Chequers with historians, academics and Cold War specialists to help her think through the broader strategic questions ahead of the summit. It paid off in spades. Thatcher wowed Reagan with an after-dinner speech which quoted Dickens and Wordsworth and paid tribute to America and the cause of freedom. The best bit was a powerful ad-lib passage about the essence of leadership and the moments he would require what she memorably described as two o'clock in the morning courage. The president was deeply moved. That summer, at his first G7 summit, Reagan found himself under heavy fire over his radical right-wing economics from the leaders of France and Canada. Despite her own doubts about Reaganomics, it was Thatcher who stuck up for the US president, telling Canadian leader Pierre Trudeau he was obnoxious and acting like a naughty schoolboy. Reagan, the new boy on the diplomatic circuit, was hugely appreciative. Margaret is a tower of strength, he wrote in his diary. Their partnership really was born on a kind of a practical level at that meeting. And it's indicative, actually, of the entire way in which she worked as Prime Minister, that at public occasions like that, G7 meetings, at international conferences, at NATO and at press conferences, she always stood up for Reagan. Her criticisms were always delivered in person behind closed doors. Reagan was an incredibly thick-skinned person. He did not take criticism or even on some occasions dressings down from Margaret Thatcher in any kind of personal way. Once George Bush became president, that uh, really became a problem because he was an incredibly thin-skinned president and immediately took offence, being spoken to in a way that he considered inappropriate to his position. But while George Bush Sr. struggled to form a bond with his opposite number in Downing Street, his son, elected president in 2000, had no such problem. By that time, Tony Blair was in residence at number 10, and although he'd been famously close to the outgoing Democrat Bill Clinton... Blair had little difficulty forming an equally close bond with the incoming George W. He was aided, just as Thatcher had been, by a savvy and well-connected ambassador in Washington. Sir Christopher Mayer had spent months, if not years, preparing for the 2000 election, ensuring his links with Team Bush were every bit as strong as those with the Democrat candidate and Vice President, Al Gore. I started in early 1998 reaching out to people who I thought were going to run. It was clear that Al Gore was going to be the, the shoo-in for the Democratic nomination. It was unclear who was going to be the Republican nominee. And the name of George W. Bush was blowing on the wind, if you like, but no more than that. He was then, at the time, governor of Texas, and I went down to Austin, Texas, to the state capitol, and I met him. Like Nico Henderson before him, the experienced mayor knew the key to building ties with any future president was to ingratiate himself with their inner circle. One big thing in all this is the networking. The networking with senior potential staff to a Bush presidency. He said to me, I really don't know much about foreign policy, but I'm going to learn from good people. And he said, I've created this group called the Vulcans. 
and I put Condi Rice and Paul Wolfowitz in charge of it. So as soon as I got back to DC, <laughs> I made contact with Rice and with Wolfowitz. Both Rice and Wolfowitz would go on to hold key foreign policy roles in the Bush White House, and Mayer was confident relations were in a pretty good place by the time Bush's victory was finally confirmed by the Supreme Court. Only one possible stumbling block now remained. Tony Blair's famously close relationship with Bill Clinton. The first thing I had to do was find out whether this was going to be a problem or not. And the person to go to was the consigliere himself, Karl Rove. And he said two things to me. He said, first of all, so the president-elect is very pleased that British-American relations have been so close over the last few years. And as for the future, and he used a classic Texan sort of biblical phrase, he said, by your works shall ye be known. And that was all we needed. So then I thought to myself, the way is now clear to say to them, can we have an early meeting? Sure enough, Blair and his top team flew out to meet the new president within a month of his inauguration. Bush, who thrived on informality, decided the venue would not be the White House, but the president's official country retreat at Camp David. This brought its own diplomatic issues. And so the great anxiety in London was, what do we wear? So I had to go and talk to probably the most powerful woman in the world, Condoleezza Rice, and say, what does the Prime Minister and his staff wear when they are in Camp David? And she said, oh, I don't know. I'll go and ask the President. So the most powerful man in the entire world has to decree what should be worn at Camp David, which is then passed on to the most powerful woman in the world, who is then passed on to me the information that casual but no jeans... Nice button-down shirt would go well. You can get them in Brooks Brothers, although at the time we didn't have a Brooks Brothers in London. Blair's choice of trousers was unfortunate. So tight-fitting you can't look at the pictures now without wincing in sympathy. The press, naturally, had a field day. But the rest of the summit went like a dream. We'd flown up by helicopter and got changed immediately and gone straight into lunch. You know, I was, I was nervous, but Blair sat down... And they looked at each other, and George W. said to Tony Blair, I said, uh, welcome to Camp David, Tony. May I call you Tony? Good to have you here. What should we talk about? And uh, Blair, without missing a beat, said, great to be here, George. May I call you George? Why don't we start with the Middle East? And off they went. And I knew instantly that this was going to be, for better or for worse, this was going to be a relationship which worked. Why don't we start with the Middle East, indeed? Weirdly, this fledgling bromance was cemented that night over a session of bad taste early noughties comedy. One of the Americans said, well, the president's so pleased with this meeting that he's decided to show you a movie. And normally he likes to go to bed early and you have supper at 5.30 and then go to bed. We had supper, unusually late for him apparently, at (laughs) 6.30. And then we watched the film. The film that they they chose was Meet the Parents with Robert De Niro and Ben Stiller. And it was hysterical in the Camp David cinema. Terrific, gigantic-sized barrels of popcorn into which you could put your entire arm, which was given to each of us. It's a surreal scene of you all sat there and Tony Blair sat there watching this movie, having spent the day talking about the Middle East. Yeah, but it was a good decompression. It was a very good decompression, actually. And it kind of sealed the deal, if you like, that we were able to sit in these wonderful armchairs watching a a very funny movie. I thought it was a very funny movie with uh, 
meet the parents. And Condi Rice fell asleep immediately because she was utterly exhausted. So we had a sleeping national security advisor and then Tony and Cherie sitting and watching the film and Laura and George and then various other people and me. And there's a moment in the film when Ben Stiller announces that his name is Gaylord Fokker. And this has the President of the United States hysterical with laughter. And I must say it made me laugh as well. And I stopped myself laughing because I thought people would think I was being sort of being sort of groveling to the president by laughing with him, but it was it was really fiery. Well, each to their own, I guess. The surreal scenes continued in the press conference the following day, when journalists were left wondering just how close the two men had actually got. There's been a lot said about how different you are. Have you already in your talks found some personal interests that you have in common, maybe in religion or sport or music? Well, we both use Col- Colgate toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to wonder how you know know that, George. It's hard to imagine Boris Johnson and Joe Biden bonding over Ben Stiller movies and mint toothpaste, but there you have it. Bush and Blair would meet again at summits that summer before the terror attacks in September 2001 moved their relationship into a whole new phase. Within days of the atrocities, Blair was in New York and then Washington, positioning himself very publicly as Bush's closest ally. Truly, they stood shoulder to shoulder, just as Blair had promised. Rarely would two transatlantic leaders find their fates so deeply entwined. It was a kind of political operation, if you like, where all the pieces came together. And partly it was luck and partly it was skill. And partly it was the essential compatibility of Bush and Blair. It took me a while to work out that George W., who'd always seemed so down-to-earth and practical and always wanted to know whether something worked or didn't work. He had a messianic side to him, which was drawn out by 9-11. And then he, he basically believed that God had given him the role in, as American president to deal with terrorism and the threat of terror. And what I think we in Britain hadn't fully recognised either at the time was that Blair had a similar messianic streak. Given what happened in the years after... 2001, could we look back on this relationship now as having actually been too successful from a British point of view? Well, if you mean by that, shouldn't Blair have been more rigorous in his analysis of the way ahead with Iraq than he was? Then I think the answer to that is yes. I think to myself, if Margaret Thatcher, and I'm I'm not making a party political point here, I think if Margaret Thatcher had been Prime Minister, she would have asked many more questions of George W. before joining him in a hot war. So, yeah, you can be too successful. It is possible to be too successful. And then you have a relationship which is like a, on your mantelpiece, like a precious vase, and you don't want to break it. Forming too close a relationship with an incoming American president was the kind of problem Tony Blair's successor would have loved to have had. Under heavy fire at home in early 2009, Gordon Brown was desperate for a little of Barack Obama's post-election stardust to be sprinkled his way. In one sense, the two men appeared natural allies, big, serious thinkers from the centre-left of their parties. But problems lurked beneath the surface. Having a Democrat in the White House was obviously a a big thing. This is Labour peer Stuart Wood, who was Gordon Brown's chief advisor on foreign affairs. 
Gordon and Tony's networks that they built famously in the 1990s when they were in opposition were mostly with the Clintons and the Clinton team. So even though Gordon didn't express a view, I always had a slight feeling that he was kind of rooting for Hillary to become the president. So when Obama beat her in the primaries, I think that left the challenge of trying to cultivate networks with Obama. And we were playing catch up, I think, for a while. Nevertheless, Wood and his team succeeded in securing the first trip of any European leader to the Obama White House. I flew over two weeks before to meet with all the people that were my counterparts, really, to work out where the flashpoints would be, you know, what the different emphases were. You have to really try and engineer it as meticulously as possible. And obviously, you can only do so much before something goes wrong. And go wrong they did, within moments of Brown's feet touching the tarmac in Washington. We literally, our plane landed and my colleague and I got the same text as we switched our phones on, which was from a senior person who worked for Obama who said, listen, guys, we've decided we're not going to do a big showy press conference. We're just going to have, I think they call it a spray, which is essentially where journalists and photographers come in, there's a few words, and then you get marched out again. Team Obama wanted to be seen to be doing things differently and less formally than past regimes. But the incident was portrayed as a severe downgrade in status for Gordon Brown perception compounded by what became known as gift gate can you just talk us through what happened <laughs> yeah i'm just reaching for the jack daniels here i remember this um <laughs> rather like a sort of eager young lover we put in a lot of effort into the gift that we would give the new president obama and one of my colleagues after a lot of thought came up with this brilliant idea of a pen holder made of wood from hms gannett which is a basically a ship very closely associated with anti-slavery we were very proud of this. We got it, you know, designed and manufactured, took it over. And um, in return, we got a box of 25 DVDs of the top 25 movies in Hollywood at the time, I think it was. A gift set of DVDs. Ouch. Too bad it wasn't Meet the Parents, I guess. Which, to add sort of slight insult to injury, was in Region 1 DVD format, for those of you who can remember these things, which meant we couldn't actually play it on DVD players <laughs> back in the UK. I thought, OK, there's going to be a mismatch here. You know, we were talking to Obama about trillions of dollars of bailout for the world economy, and yet the Region 1 DVDs we knew would become the biggest story for a lot of the journalists covering it. That, of course, was exactly what happened. Obama's warm words for Brown at the press conference were forgotten. The DVD box set was not. And worse was to come that autumn when the two men attended a United Nations summit in New York. Someone in the travelling party briefed UK journalists that Brown's team had made five separate requests for a one-to-one with Obama and five times had been rebuffed. The snub story was instantly big news back home. But that was just the start. When Team Obama did finally agree to a meeting, it was for the briefest of informal chats. And embarrassingly, the venue was a kitchen in the basement of the cavernous UN building. They were worried that if they gave four meetings to one country, they'd have to give loads of four meetings to lots of countries. So they were trying to say, look, let's just have informal meetings or grab a chat or let's sort of improvise and get our guys to sort it out. But somewhere along the line, that got translated to the British press as formal requests being turned down. I think as Obama left the meeting at the UN, he said, let's chat. And they wandered and ended up wandering through 
as they were taken out for security reasons through the back passages of the building, they ended up going through the kitchen and had an informal chat there. So the kitchen summit was born from that. How much truth was there in this sort of narrative that he was treated a little bit rudely and coldly by Obama uh, in, in on several occasions? How Was there an, a kernel of truth there or, or was this all media invention really and nonsense? I genuinely think it was it was almost all media invention. As I say, at the beginning, I think there was an attempt by Obama to get rid of some of the formality and that hurt us. I mean, there wasn't the same sort of loving that you saw between Blair and Clinton or even Blair and Bush. It wasn't like that. But that's because that's not the nature of Gordon. Gordon doesn't do that sort of buddiness in the same way. And I think actually Obama doesn't do that either. So it was nothing to do with animosity or slights, definitely not. There's a sort of narrative taken hold in parts of the British media and perhaps the Tory party that Obama wasn't really a fan of Britain at all and was more interested in other European countries. Is there some truth in that, do you think? Yes, I think there is some truth in that. I think they were much more interested in refocusing the US on Asia. And within Europe, they were most interested in the sort of southeastern corner of Europe, Turkey and the sort of the hinge countries, if you like, between the EU and the Middle East. And they were interested from a security point of view in those countries, the Balkans and Turkey in particular. That was their primary focus. So we ranked, not Britain, but I think Western Europe ranked low down the order. So if Stuart Wood is to be believed... Boris Johnson may indeed face an uphill struggle in securing the unbowing love and attention of President Biden, but more for geopolitical reasons than personal slights. Even so, there are one or two easy lessons he can learn from Prime Minister's past. Clearly, Margaret Thatcher's genius trick of befriending a future president before he takes office has passed Johnson by. Boris instead appears to have spent the past few years, well, basically winding Biden up at every turn. Moving into the White House for a few weeks a la Churchill is probably a non-starter too. And it's hard to imagine Johnson and Biden settling down to watch Meet the Fockers or whatever. Personal chemistry obviously helps. But above all, it's the preparation for these meetings which is key. And the trips must be carefully choreographed to avoid diplomatic gaffes on either side. Much responsibility lies in the hands of Britain's ambassador, Karen Pearce, who has no doubt spent the past 12 months frantically trying to woo the key people in Biden's inner circle. For Johnson's part, a touch of the old-school charm exemplified by Churchill and Harold Macmillan as they won over FDR and JFK respectively would not go amiss, although we'll have to do it without the large glasses of strong liquor both men used to help them, Biden being resolutely teetotal. In the end, perhaps the sagest advice comes from Sir Christopher Mayer, who wonders if the importance of all of this might not be somewhat overplayed. You can attach too much importance to the personal relationship. And I would say to the current Prime Minister, focus on the national interests that are in play on the American side and on the British side. And look where they converge and look where they Diverge, And one of the reasons why I'm very confident that Boris Johnson and Joe Biden will get on is because when you do the balance of converging interests with diverging interests, those that converge are way in the majority. So there is a similar view of the world and a similar view of how to tackle the big problems between the United States and the United Kingdom. The personal relationship, in the end... If you look at British-American relations since the Second World War, the personal side of things is the cherry on the cake. 
and sometimes it's a very big cherry, and sometimes you can barely see it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And why not leave a comment there too, if you have the time. This episode was produced by Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions, and our executive producer is Politico's Christina Gonzalez. I'll be back next week. And in the meantime, you can check out our past episodes on morning newsletters and on the history of pandemics, if you haven't done so already.